Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hi, this is James Shulkin with Webcomics Reviews and Interviews. Tonight, we're looking at science fiction tropes and how to use them. So sit back, relax, and let the geek fest begin. One of the problems writers face is creating a reason for readers to suspend disbelief. That is, we want to take you in some really weird areas, but you're not going to come with us unless, you know, it matches up with some sort of actual reality. That is, a reader needs something familiar before you take them into the unfamiliar. In order to do this, we take advantage of a lot of different types of tropes. That is, literary shortcuts that, once we've established, are there, become, no matter how weird these things are, become enough of a touchstone that the reader is at that point willing to go pretty much anywhere we want to take them. You know, it's sort of like having a raft in a, in a sea. You have no idea what's in the sea, but because you've got that raft, or heck, let's advance it to a warship. Whatever floats your boat. But, you know, basically you've got something familiar, something solid, something that you can count on. That even if we take you into a really weird area like a Sargasso Sea with, you know, alien monsters and really weird constellations above you, you've still got that something familiar, that is the warship, that acts as a touchstone. And because you've got that touchstone, well, hey, you're willing to more than suspend disbelief of whatever we're going to throw it at you. You've got your big teddy bear, we've got our monsters under the bed. Hey, we're good to go. So, the only problem is that if you use these tropes too often, they become straight cliches. There's unfortunately two ways of dealing with the cliches. You either show that there's an actual reason for it to exist, or you find a different cliche. So, with that in mind, I thought it'd be sort of interesting to go through and explore why certain tropes tend to work really well, especially in, say, in this case, a science fiction setting. For the purposes of our discussion tonight, I'm looking at a science fiction universe that's modeled loosely on, you know, your average Star Trek universe. You know, you've got the starship, dozen or so alien races, different crewmen capable of doing different things, and you're basically there to explore. And hey, just to be different, Let's throw a couple of Jedi Knights on board. Not that they're really going to make any difference as far as the discussion goes, but, you know, you've got something that's space opera that you can use as a basis for the analogy. So, let's get going, shall we? Here are ten different tropes that you should be familiar with as a science fiction writer. Let's start off with crystals. You know, they're bright, they're shiny, and they tend to be used to power a lot of things. So, 
question is, why would these work in universe? I mean, obviously, if you mention Starsh, you know, once she was a writer, mentioned that hey, we're powered off of crystals. You've got this really cool little thing going on where you don't have to mention the power source after that. You don't have to mention the mechanics of how the power is taken out of the crystals. You've just got something really shiny that you know you use to power the ship with. Major advantages: you got something. That obviously everybody's heard of. The obvious question, however, is why would these work in an actual universe setting? Well, the first is, is that crystals can be used to carry a charge. More importantly, they can be used as lenses to create greater sources of energy. Um, just look at, for example, what happens when you take a magnifying glass during and you focus the sun's rays. You can take advantage of that magnifying glass to create something that actually burns. So, when it comes to a science fiction universe, obviously the writer is taking that up a step and have created a situation where the crystals themselves are actually being used as the power source. Well, there's a couple of advantages of using crystal as an actual power source. First off, let's say you've got a really weird exotic form of energy you're going to want to focus it you're going to want to basically you're going to want something that can actually be stuck around there for a while and actually deal with it especially we're looking at something like say matter antimatter explosions well crystals being really hard to destroy obviously are a really great answer to that i mean let's get real diamond is arguably the hardest element on earth there's nothing a diamond can't cut and we already know that diamonds have a lot of industrial uses. It wouldn't be that big of a leap to use them that actually is part of the actual engine. Especially if we've got some really weird exotic matters going around. And like you said, to a degree, crystals carry their own charge and can be used to focus that energy. On top of that, because they are... You're relatively a condensed form, you can also use them, they become easier to transport. In fact, the fact that they have a, they're usually lighter than other substances, only it makes them even easier to transport. And when you start dealing with a starship where you want to reduce the amount of weight you're dealing with, because the less weight you have, the less fuel it takes to, to energize the ship. Hey, at that point, something that's hard, that's lightweight, becomes a really easy thing to transport. On top of that, these things also have multiple uses. Another major plus when you're dealing with a starship, when you want everything to not just be used for just, just one thing, you actually want these different forms to actually be used multiple ways. Well, as I've already mentioned, you can take the crystal and pretty much make it into a lens for pretty much any use you need to. Obviously, you'll be using it for power. Also, you can use them as a form of money. You know, you go to some sort of species. Not only are you using, you know, batteries as a form of barter, but they also look pretty and they generally do well as jewelry. So, not only do you have, so when it comes down to it, you're using crystals as a form of energy that's hard to damage, easy to transport, multiple uses. 
when it comes to a form of starship fuel, you really can't do all that worse. Alright, so let's look at powerful aliens. A general rule is that the more advanced a society is, the more powerful citizens are. I mean, you obviously have a few exceptions here and there, but generally speaking, you know, when you start looking at the really powerful aliens in pretty much any genre, these are aliens that have been around for a while. So the question is, would an alien race actually get more powerful as it ages? And, well, look at humans compared to, say, chimpanzees. Yeah, the chimpanzees are stronger than we are, but at the same time, ignoring our ability to use tools for a second, we're smarter than they are. We can communicate better, which means that we can ask each other for help on dealing with situations a lot easier. And we can actually pace ourselves a lot better than most chimpanzees do. Overall, this means that relative to the situation, even though the chimpanzees might be stronger than us in one particular area, in general, humans tend to be a lot more powerful than the chimpanzee, especially when we've got a group situation going. Well, and this is just over a few, relative few million of years. Imagine if you had a lot longer to advance and you were actually looking for ways to advance those species. I mean, just compare humans today versus, you know, humans of the Roman era. Sure, or only a little bit brighter, but we're a little bit stronger. We a little bit more endurance, believe it or not. And we've got a lot more ability to deal with tools. In essence, relative to our, say, even our Roman ancestors, we've got some major th things going on. Basically, what I'm trying to point out is that the longer species has to evolve, you know, you're going to see it. You're going to see it stronger. It's brighter. It's overall more attractive. Members tend to procreate much more often than the average members, or even those that are above, or even those that are below average. So, in essence, over time, you're going to create a much more powerful alien race. And while this may seem, you know extremely small on an incremental level you start looking at this over hundreds or thousands or millions of years and you're going to see an alien race that's actually gotten a lot more powerful than its origins on top of that if we're talking an alien race it really doesn't have a whole lot of people to throw into the spotlight that is most people stay at home and they throw a couple of people off onto the you know alien ships, or at least relative to them, there's a possibility that they're not going to be choosing the average Joes. They're going to be looking at the best, the brightest. They're going to look at the people that can be a really great representation of that alien race. So while some alien races are going to be looking for ways to pawn off their miscreants, the rogues, their troublemakers, a lot of those alien races are going to be looking for ways to demonstrate this is the best, the brightest. These are the people that we want to be. And we're going to basically throw these under your starship as representatives of our race. So not only are you talking about 
a race that already has evolved into being a little bit more powerful than average, you're then taking the most powerful ver versions of that species, and that's going to be the representative of what everybody thinks of that race. Throw in that you've somehow or another managed to train or adapt that person to be the best. In other words, we're not just talking, you're going to take your brightest, your most powerful person and make them into a janitor. You're going to make them into a scientist or an engineer or even a lawyer. And those skills will enhance the genetics and will basically make something start off as uh, just above average and make it into an almost superhuman. So, when we start looking at... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So, I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Powerful races. Yeah. You know, it's not going to be that incredibly difficult to see that you're going to have a lot of powerful races because they've just simply been around for a long time. Have garnered a lot of power. Um... We're also looking at why there's so many humanoid races. That is, why we're seeing a lot of people that have two arms, two legs, a trunk, and a head. Obviously, there's a thousand one exceptions to that general rule. I mean, Star Trek's Horta, for example, the big rock. Uh, you've got a lot of tree-like species. You have a couple of fishes. In short, yeah, you've got a lot of non-humanoid species running around. But in general, when we start looking at science fiction, we tend to see the humanoid. Now, obviously, if we're dealing with film or TV production, humanoid species are a lot easier. You know, you slap on a couple of prostheses, you put makeup on them, heck, you can even CGI it. But the bottom line is you're still dealing with essentially a humanoid form. Now, minus the introduction of something like telekinesis or some equivalent, um, generally speaking, there actually are a good reason for the humanoid form to be so omnipresent. First off, because they can generally walk erect or some degree, they've got better. They can actually go over multiple um, environments. That is. They can swim, they can walk, they can crawl, they can even climb. If I'm dealing with a straight tree, for example, first off, assuming it's mobile, it's basically going to be limited to pretty much horizontal movement. Even when it's limited, I mean, it might be able to do some vertical movement, but, you know, that's pretty much going to be the extent of it. Any other type of environment, like say if you put this tree in water, yeah, it's going to float, but it's going to need to figure out a way to actually move. So, obviously being able to explore the situation around it 
is a major advantage of the humanoid form. And obviously not being limited to just simply one or two types of environment. Um, the other advantage is that humanoids can manipulate their environment better than other human, than other forms can. Sure, if you've got a tree with some manipulative branches, you're going to do pretty well. But at the same time, you know, it's not going to be all that really great in terms of general use. I mean, you try to put one of these on a starship and things are going to get really weird really quick. And not just because of the size issue. I mean, I just have problems seeing even, you know, the average tree just having a major problem getting around on a spaceship. What I'm sort of looking at here is not that the tree is going to have a problem, say, manipulating things in the environment. The question is, will it be able to build things? And generally speaking, a humanoid shape is actually built so it can actually build things. And that, when it comes down to advancing the species, is a major advantage. Um, above and beyond that, I mean, let me take that back a step. I can make a lot of different variations on the humanoid form. I can replace, say, the limbs with tentacles, for example. And I'm still going to have something that can manipulate objects and it can actually do things like welding or you know, blacksmithing, which is sort of what I'm looking at here. If I'm dealing with a fish, well, not so much. Uh, the Horda, really powerful race. There's nothing it can't tunnel through, for example. But at the same time, you know, sure, it can probably use its heat to weld things, but can't actually build a computer, you know? Obviously, you can deal with a lot of different variant technologies, but generally speaking, when you start looking at some of the more exotic life forms, there starts to hit the problem of can this stuff actually build stuff? And, well, the humanoid form just happens to excel in that particular area. Not just because of the size, because obviously we can be looking at, you know, extremely small versions to extremely large versions. And we can look at a lot of different variations. I mean, it'd be sort of interesting to see, for example, a race of praying mantises with human-like intelligence and human-like size. But again, even in England, we're still talking a semi-humanoid situation. We're talking a pair of legs. We're talking multiple pairs of arms, maybe even a pair of wings, and we're still looking at the trunk and the head. And yeah, I know that's a liberal application, but... You know, we sort of have to look at it that way when we start looking at science fiction. We're not just looking at, say, a mammalian type of situation. We're looking at possibly reptilian, avian, a thousand and one variations. Humanoid in this situation is, in the most liberal sense of the word, just a pair of legs, a pair of arms, a trunk, and a head. And there's a lot of advantages to that shape. I mean, you put all your sensory organs and allow them to peek into a situation versus, say, having to present your entire chunk. So, you know, the humanoid form just has way too many advantages relative to other forms. So you're going to be seeing it a lot. Obviously, you'll be seeing a lot of other forms as well. 
But again, the human form just tends to do really well when it comes to building things and when it comes to exploration. So unless you build your race with some really good telekinesis or the ability to combine you know, a lot of different versions of itself, like for example the exocomps from Star Trek. Yeah, look up the exocomps. Really cool concept. <clears throat> Even nanites from a lot of different areas. You know, in terms of single entities, the humanoid form just tends to work. So yeah, there's a good reason you're going to be seeing it a lot. While we're at looking, and one last thing when we're looking at different types of people, there's a reason you're going to be seeing a lot of, you know, beautiful women or even beautiful men. First off, keep in mind that when you start looking at people that are actually on the starship, we're still looking at the best and we're looking at the brightest. In and of itself, that's going to create an attraction in and of itself. On top of that, we're looking at people that do a lot of constant exercise. Again, something that adds into attractiveness. On top of that, you know, willpower and intelligence are still going to be a major source of sexual attraction. I mean, let's get real. If you have a choice between somebody who can actually put up a decent fight to you or somebody who's going to cave in every time, nine times out of ten, that person who can put up a fight is going to be a lot more attractive than the person who caves in. And yeah, the more intelligent, the better. You know, when you start looking at a situation where intelligence is actually a major statistic, it's actually important, then hey, that all of a sudden becomes an attractive situation, attractive statistic in and of itself. So yeah, when it comes down to it, people in Star Trek are going to be a lot more attractive than, say, if we were doing a medieval era situation. It's just, you've got these people that can spend time, deal with their medical issues, they can do all this exercise, they take care of their mind, exercising it a lot. You know, it just ultimately is not really going to be hard to see why you're going to have a lot of really attractive people in Star Trek. Even if they, they just, they've got way too many different variations on what beauty really is. And because you've got all these different types of beauty in one type of area, even if it's not strictly physical, you know, it's still going to come off as everybody's really attractive. Go figure, right? Um, something that's worth noting here, by the way, is, well, while we're looking at physical beauty, another thing we need to look at is that everybody tends to be physically developed. You know, there are some obvious reasons, especially if we're looking at a Star Trek uh, Explorer type situation. You're not going to want people that are physically handicapped. I mean, you can obviously put people into that situation. Um, walkers and exoskeletons obviously are going to be major useful in that situation. Um, again, going back to Star Trek, Commander Pike guy who was able to hold his own at an actual hearing 
In fact, he was the major star of the show for the entire um, series when they were doing the menagerie. And he literally was in a futuristic wheelchair. He was a quadriplegic, and the only way he could communicate was through a series of lights. So obviously, you can't have physically handicapped people as part of your crew. You're just going to want to really debate it because these people are going to have a limitation if something bad happens to your starship or if you need these people to go on to an alien planet. Obviously, you're going to have a lot of people that are going to have some sort of physical development going on. You know, on top of that, they're going to keep exercising themselves because, well, just to avoid the sheer boredom of outer space. Those endorphins are a really great way to avoid boredom. I mean, I'm willing to bet you've got a lot of people that do holodeck stuff that is some variation of extreme sports more often than you are sexual fantasies. Not saying that we're not going to have sexual fantasies. Thank you very much, Lieutenant Barkley. But you're basically looking at people who are going to be, you know, some sort of physical development. We're talking the rock climbing. We're talking parkour for fun. We're talking martial arts. Yeah, you're going to have a lot of murder mysteries um, and a lot of really interesting puzzles to solve. But generally speaking, I'm willing to bet you're going to see a lot of people who are doing stuff just to... Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Be physical. Because it's not stuff you, you know, if you do it right, it's almost a meditative state and it can actually allow you time to go a lot faster. So while you are going to have a lot of handicapped people, at the same time you're going to have a lot of people that are in there to, you know, just do something. And so it's not that really hard to see a lot of people are going to be physically developed. I sort of point this out because when you start looking at uh, science fiction, you start seeing a lot of people who are a little bit more muscular, a little bit more buff, a little bit more graceful, that sort of thing. And, well, just pointing out that if you're on a star trip or starship and you have nothing to do, all of a sudden those physical activities are going to be great time wasters. There's only so many times you can play Uno. Great card game, don't get me wrong. Chess, great board game, don't get me wrong. But there's only so many variations of chess you can play or so many variations of Uno. You're going to want to do something that allows you to get an endorphin rush going and 
you don't have to think while you're doing it. And nothing does that better than climbing a wall. Uh, climbing a wall. So yeah, you're going to see a lot of people with some serious physical development going on. As far as skills go, you're going to know that pretty much everybody can fight. Well, again, you're going to have two variations on this. And let's go to two obvious universes. On one hand, you've got Star Trek. Everybody has a military background of some sort. So yeah, everybody's going to be trained at least in basic hand-to-hand. -hand. On top of that, like I said, you're going to have these people that are incredibly bored. They're going to be looking for something to do. A lot of them are going to be heading into martial arts or some variation. Um, so obviously, and heck, even when it comes down to basic entertainment, you're going to have people going on to virtual firing ranges, you know, for hours at a time. You know, you're going to be basically building up a lot of combat skills in your personnel, even if they didn't have that kind of stuff to begin with. You know, and then let's flip over to the Star Wars universe. You know, yeah, obviously if you're an Imperial, you're going to be doing, you know, the same basic problem. On the other hand, if you're more the Rebel type, well, you're going to be in one of two situations. You're either going to be from a backwater world where survival skills included a bevy of basic um, combat skills. In this case, the ability to wield a knife, the ability to shoot things. Yeah, how many times do you hear characters point out how small an object they can shoot at a very wide range? Wampa rats. And so, you know, even in something that's relatively, I want to say low-tech when it comes to the Star Wars universe, but we both know that's not quite accurate relative to the situation. But you're still looking at people that, because of the lives they lead, be it mercenary, be it, backwater planet, be it rebel, be it be imperial, we're talking a lot of backgrounds that encourage the development of combat skills just for basic survival. So yeah, when it comes to science fiction stories, you're going to see a lot of combat ready people. And of course, let's not forget that everyone can fix things. You know, uh, Star Trek is probably the most obnoxious series for this because everybody has three languages. They've got some sort of alien species, they've got some sort of universal language, and everybody can speak Technobabble. You know? How many times have you heard about fixed, you know, switching the pol polarization of the deflection array? Seriously? You're obviously going to have three reasons for this. The first is that if you're going to put people on a start ship, you're going to want them to do at least basic repairs. You know, you're going to want to throw people at damage control if, even if they have no other relevant skills. You know, I don't care how good of an astrogation person you are, you're going to basically know how to do basic repairs. Um... On top of that, people that tend to be around a lot of technology tend to know how to fix basics. You know, you don't have to be a computer geek in order to do basic computer repair. You know, even if it's something as simple as turn it on, turn it off, you know how to load things up, you can actually do basic um, 
<laughs> sorry, basic installation and deletion of programs. Uh, if you deal with cars, even as a driver, you're still going to know how to do extreme basic repairs like tires, that sort of thing. You know, you're going to be able to look at the engine, assess whether or not you can deal with the problem, and you're still going to be able to do basics. You're going to be able to jumpstart it. You're going to be able to replace the battery. You're going to be able to assess and figure out what needs to be done so on and so forth. That is, familiarity with technology enables you to do at least basic repairs. On top of that, a basic situation we notice even in our lives is that technology has become easier to repair. That is, connections become a lot more obvious. You know, we've gone from like 37 different types of connectors to just a couple. So, you know, the higher the tech, the simpler the repair, which is sort of weird when you think about it, but, you know, even in a lot of repairs, when it comes down to it, are going to be basic common sense. You know, if you're looking at a conduit and you see the male and the female ends are disconnected, obviously you're going to connect the two. So, having a lot of people that can actually repair basic systems in a starship and applying that to technology in other areas, you know, obviously everybody's going to be have at least some basic repair skills. So obviously it shouldn't become as a major shock that, you know, even somebody from a backwater planet is going to have some ability to repair objects and can actually be taught how to repair things relatively quickly. Another fun problem is that you notice in Star Trek or in a lot of science fiction, over time, everybody tends to get related. That is, if you start mapping things out, even if people, two people aren't genetically related, they've got some sort of real past relationship. This actually is, when you think of what happens in real life, actually makes a certain degree of sense. I mean... You know, obviously, the more famous a person is, the more likely they are to attract other famous people. You know, famous people just like hanging out with other famous people. And if you're on a starship, well, you're the best of the brightest right off the bat. So, that means you've got a certain degree of fame going into the situation right off the get-go. You know, you're going to be wanting to pay t you know, get play with people in the same type of field. And on top of that, because you've got a little bit of a reputation, you know, people are going to know who you are. So right off the bat, you've got a couple of, you know, a couple of steps between you and the person. So obviously there's going to be that relationship right off the bat. And once you start realizing that people in the same field, let's, you know, narrow it down. Let's say you've got two astrogation type people. They're going to know each other. Just because they're in the same field, there's a limited number of people in that field. So, again, you've got another type of relationship going on. On top of that, you let's get real. In most families they tend to be that are competitive, they tend to basically overlap a lot of people. I mean, look at the Williams sisters in tennis, for example, or... You know, you've got a lot of scientists that, even though you may know only one person in that family, odds are you've got, like, 
that person's had siblings, cousins, aunts and uncles, even mother and father, so even grandchildren that have also contributed heavily to that field. You simply know the one person, especially the further back in time we go. But let's look at that and apply that to you know the future. If you've got a very competitive family, these people are going to be coming in and you know playing off of each other every so often. Even if they're not assigned to the same starship, they're still going to have, you know, they're still going to be in nearby starships or bases or assigned to planets or, you know, you're basically going to come across a lot of the same basic families. These people are going to be so competitive that you're going to hear the phone calls every so often or whatever passes for communication. Hi, subspace. Hey, I'm Arthur. Yeah, guess what I did? You did what? Yeah, that's cool too. But guess what? You know, you're going to have a lot of com family in competition with each other, especially once you start getting rid of the limitations of the competition. Once people start going to straight pure competition, yeah, it's going to get wild. And so you're going to see a lot of the same family names tend to pop up a lot. Not because there's only like three or four families competing, but because you've got all these other family members, the easiest way to compete is to rub it in the other person's face. And if there's no real restriction on who can compete on something, that is, right now we're limited to wealth factors or location factors or, you know, just simply availability. If we're talking a high-tech future, a lot of those barriers are going to be at the very least decreased to almost the point of non-existence. So, yeah, you're going to have a lot of families who are going to get into really heavy competition with each other, so you're going to see them close up and nearby a lot. And even when we talk about non-family, we're talking about rivals, you know. He going at, he going anime, but let's go look at, you know, Sasuke and Naruto. You know, we were talking hundreds of episodes where these two have been each other's throats. And no matter where the other person is, you can count on they clash at some point. Well, apply that to a science fiction universe. You know, you've got some really major rivalries going on that these people are going to be touching base with each other every so often. So, when it comes down to it, you're going to have a lot of these, you know, situations where these people are going to be related. They're either going to have the same field, same family, they're going to be rivals, or they're just simply two famous people that are started locking horns for whatever reason. And, of course, there's the one world government. All right, here's my personal beef. And think this through for a second. First off, when it comes down to civilizations, see, my personal beef here is that you've got a lot of people that say that one world governments aren't realistic, especially once you start doing one system or one galaxy or whatever. Yeah, here's the problem with that. Let's look at, the, let's look at Earth for a moment. Um... I don't care where you are, you start noticing that the older the group is around, the longer a group is around, the bigger the organization gets. 
That is, we started off as individuals. We started going to families. Those families grew into tribes. Those tribes grew into uh, villages. Villages grew into cities. You know, you see where this is going. Those cities became nations. Those groups of cities grew into nations. Those little itty-bitty nations grew into bigger nations, and those little, those medium-sized nations grew into even bigger ones. You know, I know a lot of people look at how the Earth is balkanized, but when you start looking at how many little individual kingdoms there were way back when, you see there's been a lot of bigger nations come out of these little ones. China, for example, had nations all over the place. Then Genghis Khan went through and had some fun. You know? He managed to grab most of the world. Same with Alexander the Great. Well, one of the obvious advantages of doing all this is that these little itty-bitty places, temporarily at least, became bigger and bigger nations. Well, here's the obvious question. Why would this not keep going on when you start throwing in better communication? If I can communicate to somebody in China and I'm in the U.S., would it not make sense that at some point in time all these nations would come into one? You know, literally, would not the United Nations at one point become a one-world government? Yeah, I know a lot of conspiracy theorists hate me for this, but let's get real. After a while, it's going to happen. You're going to have a situation where we're going to have a real one-world government. And if we make a one-world government, and the only limitation we have is travel and communication, but we're able to, you know, colonize another world, well, eventually those two worlds are going to become, you know, a government together. And then it's going to start expanding from there. In essence, having a one world or a one king, you know, one empire galaxy or whatever may not make sense because we're so used to thinking in terms of balkanized countries. You know, like Europe, literally where it comes from, the Balkans, where you have all these little relatively small countries all over the place, you know, France, Germany, Switzerland, what have you, in one small area. Well, the way I'm looking at it is even though the local government might be different, you're still going to have an overarching government. So as such, it's just going to come into eventually being a one-world government. It's just too efficient to ignore. And I know this is going to sound communistic, but the reality is communist isn't a really successful government past a certain point. You know, you can have a democracy if you want, or you can have a natural empire, however you want to do it. But keep in mind that the more power, sorry, what I'm trying to look at is that you're going to have like a planetary governor, you're going to have a system governor, and some sort of Senate representative at some point, and the more powerful, sorry, the more people this person represents, obviously, the more power they have. So, you know, it's just, I know a lot of people have argued that your own, a one-world government is totally unrealistic. The reality is, once you start looking at how com, you know the commonalities between people, the allowing for the communication and take care of a lot of the travel issues, 
it's almost inevitable that you're going to create a one-world government. It's just going to be a matter of who takes over. And, of course, last but not least, the bar. <laughs> In a lot of science fiction, at one point or another, you're going to have people go to a bar. You know, I don't care if you were talking a futuristic version of a dive bar we're like Mos Eisley um, a little bit more sophisticated bar like Ken Ford on the Enterprise or you know we're looking at pretty much anywhere that the crowd of people group together well the advantage of having a bar is that one it provides a really cool setting that allows you to do some local flavor but more to the point from a you know person to person situation most bars are pretty easy to find you know I don't care if you're you know how obscure they are you throw in GPS technology you can find anything as long as they've tagged it somehow you know even in our real life we've got a bar is a really great place to meet people you know either officially or decidedly unofficially yeah, you want to get a hookup? You go to a bar. You don't go to the local playground. If you're going to a playground to get a hookup, yeah, you've got some issues. But let's keep it. You're going to go to a bar nine times out of ten. Yeah, you can meet other parents at a playground. Don't look at me that weird. But the bottom line is the bar is a great place to meet other people, either formally or informally. You know, you want to meet a new business person? Hey, Meet them at the bar. You don't have to be a... It's a really nice little place. You know? And alcohol is a great lubricant when it comes to pretty much everything. Especially business. On top of that, if you want something that's... One great reason bars are looked at besides the alcohol is that there's always different ways to exit the place. Or... There's always security, so if something's really going wrong, there's some sort of backup there. In essence, yeah, the bar is going to be that big cliche that everybody has to deal with, but let's get real. It's a fun one, and it serves a lot of useful purpose. And remember what I said, I basically fit all the stuff into a meta? Watch this. Crystals. These allow you to basically set up a really great power source. You don't have to explain it. It's got enough science fiction going for it. Hey, crystals work as a power source. Everybody being a humanoid shape, again, works because it means you can simplify equipment design, which is your artist is going to love you for. Um, you can actually have, you know, and you can have a lot of different fun with it. Yeah, I know, it goes back to the TV movie scene, but... Again, if the humanoid has a lot of different use to it, why not explore all the variations of it? And yeah, you can go from mantis to, to man in two seconds flat. It's just a matter of how you configure it. You know, obviously having everybody with different levels of attractiveness is not a bad thing. Powerful aliens? You know, you've got some really great plot points that are based on Different kind of different aliens react, and 
you know, from a meta perspective, if you need that occasionally dissect some arcana, you've got something that can actually help you. You know, you've got somebody who can step in like an adult and say, hey, this is what's actually going to happen. You can't really be a powerful alien for that. If you have everybody can fix things and you have different levels of that ability, hey, all of a sudden you don't have to, you know, you're going to have to be trapped in an area for as long as you want them to be trapped there. If they have to find a part, cool, it's just a matter of figuring out where the part is. But with everybody having basic repair skills, people are only trapped in an area for as long as you want them to be. If everybody can fight, you know, and they have different intervals, like somebody's a master marksman, somebody's a great martial artist, um, somebody's got a, yeah, Venusian Aikido. Let's throw that in there. Bonus points if you get the reference. But different specializations of combat skills work, especially if you're trying to do very uh, visualizations of this. It also means that if a firefight does break out, people won't be incredibly useless. Um, again, that ties in with everybody being physically developed. Again, you can have handicapped people, but at the same time, you can have some people do, you know, you're not limited to a particular situation. And yeah, you can take away that physical development any time. You can have people put in different bodies. You can have hypnotic locks go down. You can have people bound. You know, I don't care how strong you are. If you're in a bunch of wet cement, it doesn't really matter. Um, having everybody related means you've got some really basic conflicts and some backstory already written into your characters. You know, you've got a really easy way shortcut that if you want to connect these two people that are obviously not usually well connected, hey, you've got a really great way to connect them. And once you've established that connection, you've established a relationship as well as a backstory. And that's a really great tool for a writer. And obviously having a one-world one government helps by having a really easy way to get people into the same situation. You know, if you've got two people from two different worlds and they've got two different governments you're really going to have to stretch to figure out how to put these people together. On the other hand, if they're embassies, or say emissaries from the same government, then hey, that government is just going to figure out a way to put those two people together. It's going to simplify a lot of your work for you. So, that's your basic tropes. Crystals, humanoid forms, powerful aliens, beautiful people, physically developed people, Everybody can fight. Everyone can fix things. One world government. Everyone's related. And of course, the bar. And if I have to tell you how to use the bar, you've not been paying attention. So, I hope this helps. Have a good evening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.